Good morning. Good morning. You came back. I wasn't sure, but thank you. Uh, so we're, those of you who were here last, at the end of the close of last calendar year, know that I took the, speaking of the land of liberty, I took the liberty of declaring this the year of vulnerability. And um, it felt like that last week um, for all of us. It'll probably feel like that today. Um, so we, we try to remind ourselves that vulnerability is part of our being created in the image of God, uh, that we serve and worship a, a vulnerable God. And um, so in this, uh, in this few weeks, um, I think we'll probably just uh, uh, go a few more weeks after this week. Um, we're not. This is not going to be six months, just so you know. Um, Thank you. So you're welcome. <laughs> um, and I asked you last week uh, a little bit about. Um, I got a few cards back, things people wanted to talk about, and people talked a little bit last week when we talked about why this is so hard to talk about. Um, and just to say a few things that were in the short time that we have these weeks that we're not going to talk about, but are really important to talk about. Um, a number of you mentioned how important it is um, to um, so-called get your affairs in order. And I think a lot of you have heard that, and a lot of you have been working on that um, and are continuing to work on that. And I've heard from a number of you who've talked about how important that is, and that is an important thing to do. And and taking the time to do that is is a reminder of our, our mortality, right? I mean, you wouldn't do that if you didn't think you were mortal. Um, and one of the challenges that we all know of doing that part of it is, um, is actually think, well, when do I start doing that? I mean, um, at what age do you start doing that, right? And so, Anyway, so there's that part of it, and that's an important part for you, and it's an important part for um, your family members, all those kinds of things. Getting your affairs in order, letting people know what your wishes are. Uh, that's important work to do. There's also a really robust uh, conversation in American culture, and it's going to become more robust, um, about how we have come to think about living and dying uh, in the midst of our current healthcare system, right, which shapes our imaginations enormously about everything from birth to death, right? I mean, the fact that Josie was born at home uh, to a lot of people is both beautiful and terrifying, right? It's like, but what if something goes wrong? I mean, because we've, we've medicalized birth, right? And we've also medicalized death. Right, and so, um, and those are important conversations to have. Uh, Liz Hughes was gracious. When I got back from wherever I was last time I was gone, um, I went three different places and I can't remember where I was. Uh, I was in New Orleans. When I got back from New Orleans, Liz Hughes had left a book on my door called Being Mortal. And if you've not read that book, Being Mortal, um, it's written by a physician who's 
wrestling with uh, thinking through the way our healthcare system has not really helped us as much as it might, uh, as well-meaning as it is. And a lot of you are healthcare professionals, so you both know this. The tensions you yourself feel within the midst of it um, may not help us as much as it needs to deal with our mortality. And uh, so those are conversations we also need to have. But what I want to focus on for the f just a you know three weeks is 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 what's the, what's the interior work that as Christians we might think of as being really really important work to our living when we think about dying as part of our life. <laughs> What's the interior work, right? So yes, getting our affairs in order is important. Yes, healthcare is important. But what about the interior work? When we think about preparing for the end of life and living in the midst of our dying, because the truth of the matter is, we all know this in our heads, but we don't necessarily know it in our, you know, at the core of our daily living. Is you know, from the time we were born we were dying, right? Um, every, from the time I was born, I was, I'm moving towards my death, right? That, that is what life is. We all know that. So it doesn't come, it's not like some magic moment in your life where you begin dying other than being born. <laughs> and there's very little that we think about. But once we come to that realization, once we have this kind of awakening, uh, and people come to it at different points, that we really are moving towards what we call the end of our, end of our life. But it really is part of our life. And what's the interior work as Christians that we can do? And, and how, do, how do we ourselves come to think through our own dying, and then how do we as Christians help others, help others also embrace, embrace their dying? And so that's what we want to talk about for these, it's really this interior work. And I, I was led to, to have this series, and it's, it's based on a, a book by uh, Henry Nowen, um, a number of you have heard of Henry Nouwen, um, very well-known uh, Christian theologian, uh, psychologist. Um, he doesn't fit in any neat category, uh, but when uh, surveys are done among uh, pastors and ministers uh, across the country and world, when they ask, Who, who's the number one person that you read, he's almost always on the top of the list. Um, he's written, he wrote, wrote about 40 books, um, and this one um, I actually hadn't heard of. I thought I knew most of his work, uh, but it's telling that I'd never heard of it. Um, certainly hadn't read it, uh, but it's called Our Greatest Gift. Our Greatest Gift, A Meditation on Dying and Caring. It just feels like the subtitle doesn't go with the title, right? Our Greatest gift, a meditation on dying and caring. And 
the reason I found out about this book is uh, one of my dear friends, who I've known for about 30 years, who lives uh, in Oxford, England, with her husband now. Some of you may remember me talking about them because we went and visited them about a year ago. Uh, her father uh, was an Episcopal priest. Um, in fact, he was an Episcopal priest for years in Rockport, Massachusetts, uh, which I didn't find out till about 15 years into our friendship in Rockport, Massachusetts is where my father was born. So that was kind of an interesting connection. Um, but her father um, has been dying for some time, and she left Oxford in this last fall, had been with him, and I was talking to her on the phone one day, and she said one of the challenges has been that um, no one will let dad talk about dying. Um, he knows he's dying. Um, no one will let him talk about it. Um, and so, in fact, her mother so refused to let him talk about it that she wanted to send Margaret back home to Oxford. She said, we'll call you back when he's on death's door. Um, but Margaret was the only one who would let him talk about it. And they would sit for hours during the day, and she would just let him talk about it. But she said what I found most helpful, she said, was we, we would read some sections together out of this book. And that gave him permission to talk about what he wanted to talk about. And it was really life-giving for him at the end of his life. And um, last Saturday, before we started this series, last Saturday um, was the funeral service for him. And I would have been up there um, had I not committed to be here the next day uh, to start this series. Um, but it seemed appropriate to be here, and Margaret understood that. And I told her I was grateful that she'd made me aware of this book because um, I think it has some helpful things in it. Um, it's not the kind of book that we're going to, you know, sometimes when we've done a book in here, I gave you an assignment for the next week. I'm not giving assignments. And you don't have to buy the book. Um, I'm saying some things that are from the book. I'm going to read a couple passages today because he says so well things that I want to say that me paraphrasing it is just silly. Um, but I have put a few copies on the back table, and if this is something that you would like to look at, um, then just take one. Um, I'd be happy for that to, to be a gift. Um, but there's no pressure to read it. There's no pressure. Again, we're not studying the book. We're, we're trying to talk about these important matters. So let me just read one. Uh, he's reflecting. He, let me just say a couple things about now because it, who he was matters. Uh, to, to me, anyway, listening um, to what he had to say. He was a remarkable person. And again, he's hard to categorize. He was born in 1932. Um, knew early on that he wanted to be a Catholic priest and um, became a Catholic priest. But he also had these other things that he cared about. He cared a lot about psychology. He cared a lot. This deeply feeling, passionate person. Um, and so one of the things, um, he, he had a career as a priest. Uh, he, he came to this country, um, taught for, uh, taught for, began his teaching career at uh, Notre Dame, taught there a couple years, then moved to Yale, uh, taught at Yale Divinity School for 10 years. Um, 
Then he went to South America uh, and lived with the poor there, thought God might be calling him to live with the poor in Peru. So he stayed there for a while. Um, then he decided God was, wasn't necessarily calling him there, so he came back, went to Harvard, uh, and taught there, uh, Harvard Divinity School, for a couple of years. Uh, Sorry to say, Jason, he found that unbearable. <laughs> uh, that drove him out of academia. Uh, and for the last years of his life, uh, he, met, he had met a man um, named Jean Vanier. If you've heard of Jean Vanier, Jean Vanier was a, was a, a Canadian um, who began what is now known as the L'Arche Movement. Uh, these are small homes around the world that began in Trovy, France, where Vanier just invited two uh, mentally disabled men to come live with him. Um, they, left in a, they left an asylum um, where they'd been locked up for years and years and years, decades actually. And he just invited them to come live with him, not just so that he could take care of them, although he did take care of them, but so that they could just share life together. Because he knew it would change his life in ways that he didn't know what they would be, but that it would. So they would share life with the vulnerable. We're back to vulnerability, right? I mean, think about how vulnerable the mentally disabled are. Um, and, and so now and went and lived in Trolley, France with Vanier for a year. And then he moved to a small community, a large community uh, in Canada. Uh, in Ontario, and lived out the rest of his days uh, taking care of a men living in a community of disabled uh, physically and but all of them mentally uh, disabled, but all of them, many of them also physically disabled um, for the last 10 or 12 years of his life. Um, he wrote this particular book in, in 1994, uh, thinking that he would have he mentions in one point in this meditation that he doesn't know how long he has to live, none of us do. He might have uh, 10, 20, 30 years left. Uh, as it turns out, he died two years later after writing this book. Um, very suddenly, uh, he was uh, in the Netherlands, his home, home country, and was traveling to Russia. His most famous book is a reflection on Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal son. He was actually uh, traveling, getting ready to travel on his way to, to Russia to do a documentary on that painting um, and had a sudden heart attack and died uh, quite unexpectedly at the age of 64. Um, so, so he is somebody who has thought a lot about vulnerability, um, thought a lot about uh, what it means to stand alongside people who are, are vulnerable and yet have, have something beautiful to offer if we come alongside them. And that's what he spent the last years of his life bearing witness to. And so as he's reflecting on uh, this little book that he's getting ready to write, um, he has a bunch of questions that he's asking himself. And these, um, these are shower questions for about a month. Uh, but I just want to read you these opening, opening questions that he has in his prologue. Is death something so terrible and absurd that we are better off not thinking 
or talking about it? Is death such an undesirable part of our existence that we are better off acting as if it were not real? Is death such an absolute end of all our thoughts and actions that we simply cannot face it? Or is it possible to befriend our dying gradually and live open to it, trusting that we have nothing to fear? Is it possible to prepare for our death with the same attentiveness that our parents had in preparing for our birth? Can we wait for our death as for a friend who wants to welcome us home? Those are challenging questions. But those are the ones that he's trying to address in this short little book. Is it possible, the language of befriending is arresting, right? The language of befriending death, befriending our dying. And so the first half of the book is about what's the interior work that has to happen so that each of us might befriend our own dying? And then the second half of the book is, how might we care for others in order to help them befriend their dying? So that's what we're going to be talking about just for a few weeks. And it's intended to be life-giving. It's intended to be beautiful and positive. Um, and I hope you'll, you'll experience it that way, because that's, that's my intention. So what do we need to do to begin? We'll talk about two things uh, that he talks about in this first part today. The first thing he says that we need to do is that we need to embrace what we might call a second childhood. And by that he doesn't mean a second immaturity. <laughs> Right. Um, he's talking about uh, the freedom of, of recognizing that we are children of God. Now, one of the things that we all realize as we're getting older is that we become more and more dependent. It's one of the things a lot of us struggle the most with. And yet there's this, seems to be this beautiful cycle that God has built into human life. And that is, we, we enter into this world, as we've said before, absolutely dependent. And it's a, it's a, beautiful thing to behold. Now, we aren't actually experiencing ourselves as dependent because we're infants. <laughs> right? We're not really conscious of anything at that point so much. We certainly can't articulate that. Can't articulate that beauty. Um, but it is a beautiful thing. Um, we hear Josie back there making little baby sounds. Right. 
And that's, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, completely dependent on her mother and father. That's the way everyone comes into the world. And that is how we will leave this world, is completely dependent. In various, I mean, depending on every person's dying unfolds differently. But a lot of us will experience, and have to some extent already, greater and greater degrees of dependence. And it's really, really hard. Not least because, as we said last week, we, we live in a culture that prides itself on independence, right? Having the freedom to take care of ourselves. We just sang about it, sweet land of liberty. Freedom in all its uh, beauty, right? There's a lot to love about freedom and liberty. And often, when we think about freedom, we think about freedom from constraint, freedom from limitations. And yet we all know that to be human is to be limited. That's just, just the way it is, right? I mean, I'm finite, so I'm limited. I can only be one place at a time. Uh, Brian's feeling that very acutely today because he's supposed to be several, you know, like three different places at one time, but he knows he can't do that. Um, so we're finite creatures. We're limited. Um, but here, here's what Nowen's trying to get us to think about and what I want us to think about too is, is it possible that there's something beautiful, that there's a gift in our increasing dependence as we move toward the end of our lives. As much as we might bristle at it, it could, is it possible to embrace that? Recognizing it won't be easy, um, but is it possible? And here's, here's one way of thinking about it. We call ourselves the children of God. God calls us the children of God. Um, we have been named, we have been adopted. Paul talks about in, in Romans 8 that uh, we have been adopted as children of God and we, so we can cry out, Abba, Father. Part of the beauty of being an infant child is that the love that Brian and Tanya have for Josie has nothing, nothing, nothing to do with what Josie can do for them. They love her for who she is. Right? I mean, it couldn't be any clearer. I mean, she just sits there sleeping on your, on your chest, Tanya. I mean, you don't love Josie because she can go get you a glass of water. I mean, it's like, hey, child, do something useful. But the truth of the matter is, you know, after we grow out of being Josie and get older and older and older, we enter into this other stage of life that is also very good. 
And that is, we take a lot of pride and a lot of our self-image and identity is wrapped up in what we can do. I'm, I'm a teacher. I love teaching. A huge part of my identity is teaching. And when I have to stop teaching formally, I hope I'll still be teaching because it's part of who I am. But there'll come a day when I can't teach. I've been a runner since I can ever remember. Run my whole life, run competitively. I had to give that up. One small loss in my life was when my body fell apart and I couldn't run competitively anymore. Um, but I can still run on the grass, I can still get my heart rate up, I can still feel good, I can still clear, clear my head, um, burn a few calories. But there's going to come a time when I'm not going to be able to do that again. Right? I don't know when it's going to be. Um, I thought I already had thought I, I had a good doctor to help me get beyond what I thought it was going to be. Um, but, you know, who will I be? I mean, I, I have to... So, all of us, at some point, have wrapped our identities around what we can do. Part of the gift of being a child of God is God has always loved us. Not for what we can do, but for who we are. Right. And we have in our culture such an emphasis on doing that it's hard to remember that at our core, we are human beings, right? We are beings. And what does it mean to be loved for who we are? Not just for what we can do. And so I think there might be some grace and gift toward the end of our days to be reminded as we are slowing down, as we have to let go of more and more things that we can't do as well, or maybe at all, that we have this daily, yes, at first particularly painful reminder that we can't do some things, but that our identity ultimately is not in what we can do. God doesn't love us for what we can do. God didn't bring you into the world because God needed, you know, a hundred extra worker bees. And so... God, God has good work for you to do. But God's love for you has never been contingent on that. God's love will never be contingent on that. We need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that. And my body's telling me that every day. If I'll listen, I resist. Don't want to listen. There's grace and gift in that. It's grace and gift. Um, one of the joys of being part of this class has been getting to know Wayne and Vanjie. And one of the things 
Wayne said early on in this class was, if you ever need anything, anything, you let me know. And he meant it. A lot of you have been there and you know this. I mean, when Wayne says that, he means it. That's part of who he is, right? Um, I remember one time we were stuck at the airport and couldn't get home. We didn't have a ride. Guess who came and got us? <laughs> Wayne did. Right? Pulled up in his minivan, carted us all home. Of course he did, because that's who Wayne is. I'm not going to call Wayne to pick me up, but I know who Wayne is. That hasn't changed, right? Wayne's not going to pick me up at the airport, but not because who he is has changed. We all love Wayne here because of who Wayne is, just like God loves Wayne for who Wayne is. What Wayne has done with his life has also been beautiful. But our love and God's love is not contingent on what Wayne or any of us can do. And that's all going to come a day when what I can do is precious little. That'll be hard. But if we could see it, that is also gift. It'll be a reminder to me, it'll be a reminder to people around me that my belovedness is not in what I do. My belovedness is rooted in who God has made me. It's the same love that brought me into the world. It's the same love that's going to carry me out of this world. And it's a, it's a love rooted in who God has made me to be, which often flows out into doing things. But there's going to be a time when it won't flow out into doing anything. I'll just be. And our hope is, how do we communicate to other people that they are still just as beloved? How do we embrace our own belovedness when all we can do is be? That's a gift. It's a gift the church has to give to each other. It's a gift the church has to give to the world. Particularly in a world like ours where all of our identities are so tightly wrapped around what we can do. As beautiful as that is, I mean, there's a place for doing. There's a season for doing. But we come into the world before that season of doing, and most of us will leave the world after the season of doing. And so that's one of the first things that we have to do interiorly, interior work that we need to do. Second thing, just a little more briefly. Second thing we have to do is not only recognize that each of us is a beloved child of God, but we also need to recognize that because each of us is a beloved child of God, that we're brothers and sisters, right? We're, we're brothers and sisters. Uh, all of us are brothers and sisters of God, beloved children of God. That means we have a lot in common. Um, Nowen says there are sort of two primary joys in life. The one that most of us experience is the joy that comes from 
being recognized for our uniqueness, our difference. And all of us can think of those things that make us uniquely who we are and that we often have been honored for. Uh, whatever it is in your life, people recognize your own peculiar, beautiful sets of gifts and abilities and passions and talents and aptitudes and accomplishments. And hopefully all of you at some point in your life have been recognized for that. And that makes you a little different than somebody else. And there's some joy in that, rightfully. <clears throat> now one says the more difficult kind of joy is the joy, the experience of joy that comes when we recognize that we have this deep commonality with all people. And part of that commonality is that we're all dying. Right? We all, all of us, we all are dying. And, and to see that as a joyful thing, I mean, you could, in some ways, you could think that and th find that very depressing. But he's trying to help us see what does it mean to see that as something beautiful? Once you've recognized that you're a child of God and that nothing, as Paul says in Romans 8, can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, 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 Paul says, can separate us from the love of God then to be able to recognize yourself, for me to recognize myself that I'm, in my embracing my dying, that I bring myself into solidarity with all other people, right? All people. And that, he says, that's, that's a difficult kind of joy. Um, I think we get little awakenings of this and little glimpses of this in different types of ways and, and different people experience it differently. When you find yourself, it's so much in my life is just, I mean, it's a human phenomenon. Most of us find it difficult not to think of ourselves as the center of the universe, right? Well, once in a while you get a glimpse to remind yourself you're not, right? Thankfully, that's grace too. Um, I, I often find it when I'm traveling, often when I'm walking through an airport terminal, and I was surrounded by thousands of strangers. And I'll see somebody walking towards me, and I'll have a reflective moment, and I'll think, what would it be like to live their life? Right? What if I were them? I wonder what they're thinking today. I wonder what they woke up preoccupied with. I wonder what their hopes and dreams are. Right? And then you see another person walking. You think, I wonder what they're wrestling with. I wonder what they're burden with today. I wonder what their suffering is today. Sometimes just when you, when you get out of your normal routine, sometimes you have these little epiphanies. There's something beautiful about that. I mean, when I find myself doing that, there's something joyful to think I'm part of this incredible world where there are seven billion people and I have the privilege of knowing a few hundred. Um, who everyone, I mean, I haven't met a person who wasn't beautiful in some way. And so I know if I, if I met any of these people, if I stopped to talk to any of these people, there would be something beautiful, again, about who they are, not about what they have done. Or, you know, I, wouldn't want to, I wouldn't necessarily want to know their accomplishments, although it could be interesting. 
But like, who are they? There'd be something beautiful about that. And so part of our, it's hard as we're aging and, and again, we're all dying. It's, it's hard to remember as we're dying. I mean, that's a very personal thing. And to be clear, everybody experiences that differently. But everybody experiences it. And so once, once you see that, once we, if we can help each other see, if God can help us see that we are, we are beloved together, and that we're, we're not alone. Um, there's a lot about dying that part of the threat of it, part of the fear of it, is the way it tends to isolate us from people. Uh, this is part of what the healthcare piece needs to get better around, uh, because often our dying feels like it, we, we pull back. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we have this conversation, because what we most need to do with each other um, it is sort of lean into this conversation and lean into this experience. And that's exactly the opposite of the thing we want to do. Okay. These are people who have things they have to, but no one's offended right now. The people are leaving for choir, so <laughs> if you're worried about if I've said something, you know, controversial. Um, yeah. I, I am not a skier. I tried to ski once, it didn't work out, and I thought, you know, life's too short to worry about skiing. Um, but I'm told by people who actually know how to ski that contrary to every bone in your body that says, lean back, right? <laughs> to lean away from the fear, right? I mean, what you actually have to do is lean into it, right? You're never going to ski if you lean back, right? It's, gonna, it's a disaster. And, but again, everything about in, in your body says, no, this is safety. And this conversation, let alone the experience of dying, which again, we're all dying, is sort of like that. Everything in our body says, pull back from this. Don't go there. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. But if, I think if we are to embrace this as part of God's good plan for us as far as how do we embrace this gift, if it is gift, I think it is gift, I think it can be understood as gift, we have to help each other do what seems absolutely contrary to our instincts. That is help each other lean into the conversation, lean into the experience, trusting that again, the, the God who called us beloved, brought us into this world as beloved children, has us in God's hands. And we have the safety of that to lean in. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you great thanks that apart from your love, we wouldn't even exist. Your love, your constant love sustains us each day. Your love brought us into this world. Your love will carry us out of this world. 
May your spirit be powerfully at work in each of our lives. May we have a deep experience of our own belovedness. And in that, may, might we have the courage to lean into these conversations and to lean into our own dying. To your glory, we pray through the one who himself leaned in, Jesus Christ.